Yeah, boy. Uh, Playing Nirvana. The Cobain 50. Nirvana. Kurt Cobain's Top 50 Albums. Nirvana. From listener-powered KEXP. Hello, 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 hello. This is the Cobain 50 from listener-powered KEXP. I'm Dusty Henry. And I'm Martin Douglas. This week, we're diving into the album It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back by Public Enemy which dropped in 1988. I believe it brings in a different perspective from the radical politics we've been talking about on this series as of yet. It's a hip-hop record. It's right in the smack dab of New York. One of its most famous songs was also the famous song that closed out Do the Right Thing, one of the greatest movies of all time, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. Here's It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. Kurt Cobain only put one rap album on his list of favorite albums. And of all the rap albums of his time, it's really no surprise that he picked Public Enemy's classic, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. Public Enemy's second album exploded onto the scene. Hell, even the production team behind the record was called The Bomb Squad. The combined forces of rappers Chuck D and Professor Griff, DJ Terminator X and Hype Man Flavor Flav upped the ante on hip-hop. Right down to their name, it was clear they weren't here to make friends. They were here to speak truth to power. Chuck and Flavor Flav met while attending Adelphi University in Long Island, New York. Flavor and Chuck both had shows on the student radio station WBAU. Flavor would routinely pop up on Chuck's show, which led to a natural camaraderie. But Chuck had his mind towards becoming a rapper. So he started putting some skin in the game. On the one hand, he'd become tight with a group called Spectrum City, a collective of DJs that included Hank and Keith Shockley and Eric Vietnam Sadler, all of whom would become members of the Bomb Squad. On the other hand, Chuck was also in the midst of a beef with another rapper in the scene, prompting him to write a response track that he named Public Enemy Number One. The song also featured an intro and an outro from Flav. Public Enemy, the group, didn't exist yet, but this was a sneak peek at what was to come. Suddenly, pieces started to fall in place. The track got played on WBAU, particularly from Andre Dr. Dre Brown. No relation to the other Dr. Dre. From there, the song caught wind in the industry, particularly the ears of Rick Rubin at Def Jam Records. Around this time, WBAU programming director Bill Stephanie was hired at Def Jam. His first assignment? Help Rubin sign Chuck. Known as the poetic political miracle son, I'm public enemy. 
Ruben would get much more than just Chuck. Chuck began recruiting the members that would become Public Enemy and the Bomb Squad. They weren't just forming around music. The group found a mission. They saw a need for rap to take on a political edge. Time's getting crazy, people blacking out. They're robbing all the cribs on Death Wish Route. Breaking into cars, trying to steal their system. 20 pounds on the bar, bet you can't lift them. Bear in mind, in the late 80s, hip-hop was still in its adolescence. Like any teenager, rap was undergoing major changes. Growing up is a time of change. Everything seems to happen at once. Rap had always been willing to address the issues facing black communities, as we heard in Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five's 1982 hit, The Message. Broken glass everywhere. People on the stage, you know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise. Got no money to move out, I guess I got no choice. But following two Reagan terms and entering the George H.W. Bush era, things weren't getting better. Tensions were high and people were getting fed up. The music was about to start reflecting it. Such was the case in 1988, a pivotal year for hip-hop. Along with Public Enemies It Takes a Nation, NWA released their landmark debut, Straight Outta Compton. Both groups came in blazing with their albums. The beats are furious, the rhymes are tenacious and pointed. You don't need a deep analysis to know what Ice Cube means when he says, NWA put a voice and sound to collective fury and frustration. It's the same fire that motivated Public Enemy. Chuck D and the group drew on militant imagery right down to their logo, featuring a silhouette of a man in the crosshairs of a sniper rifle. Chuck says this symbolizes life as a black man in America. If you think about political consciousness in hip-hop, overt political consciousness, there's nobody else you think of first. That's Larry Mizell Jr., our creative director of editorial, talking with DJ Rez Rollins about It Takes a Nation back in 2018. You'll hear a few clips from that conversation throughout this episode. At the same time, how overt they were with that, it had a huge effect on bringing uh, young white listeners to hip-hop kind of shaking them out of the FM radio dial stuff that they were fed and thinking about James Brown to Malcolm X. Because that was a time when, when those listeners were really fascinated by stuff that, that maybe seemed kind of verboten in a way that I don't know if young, young hip-hop listeners these days approach music. For the suckers at the door, if you're up and around, for the suckers at the door, gonna knock you right down, yo! Public Enemy released their first album, Yo, Bum Rush the Show, in 1987. Already, the group stood out from the rest of rap coming out around that time. Their sound was harsher, grittier, and fully embraced the spirit of the Black Power movement. Chuck's booming voice against Flav's hyper-energetic antics were a powerful combination over guitar samples and pounding drum machines. You're gonna get yours! to the side, I know you hate my 98! Ego 
Even though the album was critically acclaimed, it wasn't a huge immediate success commercially. And by the time the album came out, Public Enemy was already bum-rushing to the next one. In 1988, they released It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. They approached the record with the expressed mission of making raps equivalent to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, a record that takes stock of the world, bringing to light the reality we're all living in rather than selling a glossy pop fantasy of rainbows and sunshine. I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it and said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Picture me giving a damn, I said never. In retrospect, Yo Bum Rush the Show was just the warm-up. The real game was now starting. It Takes a Nation is louder, faster, and more biting than its predecessor. And of course, Chuck's politics on the mic are massively influential. Here's Larry talking about how the music impacted him. I would absolutely say that uh, kind of themes and, and motifs that Chuck and co were bringing to the game were hugely influential in my life and making me think about the world around me and what was happening to people who looked like me. It definitely bridged me over into reading the autobiography of Malcolm, of course. And, you know, Chuck's style is so singular in terms of like that kind of propulsive kind of super booming bellicose style he had for sure absolutely he could be really direct he could be like a shotgun he could be like really kind of impressionistic you know smelling selling sniffing riffing you know he's talking about coke but he's he, he doesn't have to say it you know that, that that's just the interesting way to approach talking about and it's not even He's talking about crack. It's just like he's he's he was just painting so expertly. Chuck D has been on the record saying that. Quote, rap is black America's CNN. Their music was a window into what life was really like in black America and the problems facing their community. Rap felt more true to the world than what they were experiencing on the evening news. Here's Larry again. When Chuck said the CNN quote, which is just huge, I do think that applied more to PE than anybody else. And it was kind of a double-edged sword because it got invoked endlessly after that to kind of cover for stuff that was really more the BET than CNN. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just exploitive and recklessly individualist. Didn't really have to do with the outside world. I think a lot of people kind of got caught up. But I get it because they were under attack, you know, congressional attack. People are running over their tapes and CDs with steamrollers. You know, it was them against, it's hip hop against the world. So close ranks and, 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 you know, they got to use any rhetoric they can. I, I, I don't I don't have a problem with that. But there came a time when it was just like, OK, stop saying you're the CNN. You ain't the CNN. Y'all are fake news. <laughs> you're, <laughs> right. you're the QVC. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. Y'all more like the QVC right now. So cut 
cut the bullshit. You ain't fooling nobody. Pardon my friends. It, 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 it was still uh, an amazing, eye-opening sentiment to, I think, a lot of people to understand that hip-hop was very valuable because it presented a, a, a worldview from people who didn't get to have a voice. One of the topics Public Enemy drew attention to was the crack epidemic of the 1980s and the much maligned war on drugs that began under President Richard Nixon and only further fueled under Reagan. Crack was cheaper and easier to access compared to other drugs, and it was also predominant in cities and urban areas. Its widespread use led to a public health crisis that hit black communities the hardest. It's something Donovan X. Ramsey digs into in his book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. In a 2023 interview with NPR, Ramsey says, quote, what it means to be black in the society is to be hit first and worst. It wasn't just the crack itself. It was also how severely the judicial system punished people for crack-related charges. If found guilty, you'd get up to 100 times the sentencing than with other drugs. And on the world stage, politicians would use images of black neighborhoods impacted by the epidemic to further push their own agendas. All of this led Public Enemy to penning their anti-crack anthem, Night of the Living Bass Heads. Check out the justice and how they run it. Smelling, smelling, sniffing, riffing, and brothers trying to get swift in. Selling their own, rob a home, while some shrivelable, like comatose walking around. Please don't confuse this with the sound. I'm talking about The song was unflinching in its depiction. Public Enemy took it even further with the music video which plays more like a short film, showing people using crack and getting arrested, all through the lens of Public Enemy's own news channel. Larry recalls watching the video. I remember early on watching it, and it just kind of struck me because I lived in a situation like that. You know, my neighborhood looked like that. It looked like zombie land. And um, I didn't really know what was going on. But I knew it had something to do with something called crack. And they were talking about it and it wasn't good. And, you know, it was just kind of a scary, uncertain time. And they, they, they really encapsulated a real righteous anger. With the intensity of the group and their message, things could get really heavy. Enter Flavor Flav. Flav gave the group some much-needed levity, with his iconic giant clock chain, his stylish flamboyant outfits, and his trademark ad-libs. In many ways, Flav is just as core to Public Enemy's ethos as Chuck. Here's Larry again. Flav is, is a, one of the most genius counterpoints I've ever seen a musical group have. You know, it wasn't just Chuck yelling at me. There was this really fun, dancey Flav cut on, on a few of those albums that got me in and he was just arresting in the videos in particular, the clock, obviously the way he wore his hat, the way he danced. I mean, the flavor dance was a big deal to the point where they even had that in the video where they, they had the old flavor dance and then they showed you the new flavor dance. Flavor was branding, you know, the story of PE is very revealing, even in how we came to view flavors via reality TV later. 
I want to find somebody that I want to share my world with. You know, obviously, the kind of imagery that he kind of was becoming associated with via, like, VH1 shows, it's not really in line with the revolutionary rhetoric of their of their records. But at the same time, I think it's it's been very informative just to see how that character could play out in American society. I'm gonna put them to the test. I'm gonna see which one of these girls love Flavor Flav the best. So it's instructive in a way to me that's still in line with public enemies in general level of instructiveness. They, they were for so many people. Upon its release, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back was practically an instant classic. The group succeeded in their mission to create a work as impactful and resonant as Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. The group quickly drew a large overlapping audience with their rock and roll attitude and, of course, the heavy guitar and drum sounds on the record. Public Enemy went on across genres and worked with artists like Anthrax. The groups emerged when they redid It Takes a Nation's hit, Bring the Noise. In recent years, Chuck D has collaborated with members of Rage Against the Machine to form the group Prophets of Rage. Then, of course, there's Kurt and Nirvana, who had released their debut just one year after It Takes a Nation. While we don't have much of Kurt on the record talking about why he loved this album, it's easy to hear what might have resonated with him. Public Enemy were models of how to be brash and outspoken when on the national stage, something Kurt himself would be dealing with in just a few years. While this is the only hip-hop album on the list, the ties between punk and hip-hop ideologies are very clear. Speaking truth to power, grassroots movements, generally not giving a f***. In a 1991 interview with Metal on the Rise, Kurt said, Rap music is the only vital form of music introduced since punk rock. While he appreciated rap, he didn't see a role for himself to play in it. He added, quote, The people that do rap music do it just fine. I'm usually offended by people like Vanilla Ice. The white man has ripped off the black man for long enough. They should just leave the rap music to the African Americans because they do it so well. Public Enemy's music spoke directly to the black communities they came from but it also opened the eyes of countless others, like Cobain, those who lived isolated from the reality of the world outside their hometowns. It Takes a Nation still feels as vital as the day it came out. And unfortunately, even if crack isn't the current epidemic of our time, its core messages of black oppression still feel fresh and timely. It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back succeeded without compromising their values. Instead of being held back, the group caught the ears of a nation of millions. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe the hype. Don't, don't believe the, don't believe the, 
don't believe the hype. Martin, what were some of your first like encounters of Public Enemy? Wow, I mean, being as though I have been a hip hop fan from the womb, you know, I remember vividly listening to this album and specifically Fight the Power for the first time and just it really gripping me. I feel like it gripped me in the same way that punk gripped me years later when I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time. And yeah, it it has always been this titanic sort of call to arms, really. And I think I'm speaking more on Fight the Power than anything else, but you could you could say that about any any song on this album. It's so chaotic and loud and busy. And as someone who has family in New York City, like it sounds like being in the city. And I think that is the perfect, that's the perfect way for, you know, an album with such strong social values to sound like, like, this sounds like people in the city at a protest, you know, really trying to make some change in the world. And I just can't get over the production in this. Shout out to the Bomb Squad, because every time I hear this album, I just think of how many musical elements there are and how they come together to create this monolith. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like going through this list, you know, sometimes we're thinking like, what might have resonated with Kurt on this record? This one, it wasn't even really a question for me listening to it. it you've, it's so visceral. This record is so punk and, and the ties between punk and hip hop are so close, but like a song like She Watches Channel Zero is like a metal song, like the, the, the visceralness of it, like it, it feels like a Nevermind, even before it came before Nevermind. It's just, it has that same resonance that I feel and that you, the energy. And like you said, like you, it paints such a clear picture of what is happening. And like you, you feel that city vibe to it. Yeah. Unlike a lot of gangster rap, like I don't think Kurt would have liked gangster rap because there is a lot of misogyny and macho-ness in it. But for Public Enemy to make Kurt's list, it is a perfect fit because it's rebellious. It's striking at one of the biggest systems in the world in the United States government. And the idea of governmental control and surveillance and news propaganda, like it's a no-brainer that Kurt would have really been into this record. You know, I've spoken to a lot of people from the Olympia punk scene that, you know, Kurt kind of, yeah, we can say that. Kurt came up in the Olympia punk scene and speaking to those people, It Takes the Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back was a very big record. It was one of those rap records that spoke to everyone as people wanting this nation to be more egalitarian, to be more focused on the people rather than our, you know, 270 billion 
trillion dollar military budget or however much it is now. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. (laughs) (laughs) I think like, you know, just like thinking about it, like in the hindsight, like I think this record had a profound impact on rock music, like across the board, like certainly Kurt, but you know, Rage Against the Machine, do they exist in the way that they did without this album? You know, obviously they worked with bands like Anthrax and stuff, but if, if I feel like if you were an artist around the time this record came out and you were like really like about this life of like living these politics mm-hmm. and, and and progressiveness, this album just changed your DNA. And yeah, it goes to show that this is a punk record and that Flava Flav <laughs> is one of the best hype people of all time he could have had his own punk band and it would have killed i would love to see him be the next singer of black flag (laughs) (laughs) like he could have been an mdc and it would have like it would have worked (laughs) yeah oh yeah absolutely so switching gears a little we have been talking behind the scenes about how much hip-hop has progressed since kurt passed away And so that beggars the question, what hip hop might Kurt have been into, you know, if he were still alive or even had lived a little longer? Because you got to think, Wu-Tang Clan, Enter the 36 Chambers came out late 1993, which is, you know, only a scant few months before Kurt died. And hip-hop has changed so much since then. I think Illmatic came out like a month after he died, yeah. like for instance. So, yeah. What, do you do you have any any thoughts or opinions about what Kurt might have liked? Yeah. I mean, that's always like the, you know, the disclaimer is we don't know. We will never know anything like that. But it's, it's fun to think about. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about DMX, um, mm. who's uh, one of my favorite rappers and like, the way DMX and Kurt used their voices, I, I think, was really a lot of parallels there. They both obviously had such iconic, aggressive, gravelly voices, and they they you know used them loudly. But the the vulnerability in which they spoke with that combination of like harnessing what might be perceived as anger to be vulnerable. That, that had a profound impact on me as a listener. And so it's, it's hard for me to not try to draw those parallels there. Yeah. And I just think about like in general, how Kurt's lyric writing process was a lot like hip hop because he had all of these diaries that he took lines from. And it was more of a composite collage sort of style of writing rather than trying to script a narrative from start to finish, you know, in like a in like a Bob Dylan sort of way. So I always appreciated that about Kurt's lyrics. I feel as though sometimes Kurt gets the short end of the stick when it comes to the great lyricists of his time. And I wanted to give him some props because I feel like a lot of hip hop artists are into Kurt's lyricism for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we just had this talk about hip-hop, so please check out 50 Years of Hip-Hop in our archives. You know, you can probably scroll down a little more past the Cobain 50 and find the 
the complete podcast right there in this feed. Yep, exactly. Yeah, our award-winning 50 Years of Hip Hop, I might add. Can't forget that we've won awards on this. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Audio was mixed by Roddy Nickpour. Our podcast manager is Isabel Khalili. Special thanks to our editorial director, Larry Mizell Jr., for his insights into public enemy. I'm Dusty Henry. And I'm Martin Douglas. We'll see you next week on the Cobain 50 from listener-powered KEXP, where the music matters. Yeah, great, great piece. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to move on the assumption, <laughs> on that, the it assumption. Was, that it was incredible.